If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 128. Uh, I apologize, I didn't look at the Pew Bible, so I don't know uh, what page that's on. Hopefully it'll pop up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. But we're going to be looking at God's Word from Psalm 128. This is God's Word. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Uh, I want to, uh, I guess, start out officially this morning by, by wishing you a, a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas in July. I don't know if any of you have heard of Christmas in July. The past couple weeks, actually, I've gotten several emails, like several, I don't know, three or four from different companies with their sales, Christmas in July. I don't know if you've gotten those. Um, and then the, this peculiar message that I was unaware of was confirmed because my daughter, who's been a part of this month-long basketball camp in West Tennessee, um, they had their last day of basketball camp this week, and the last day was this celebration, Christmas in July celebration. She came home and she said, Dad, what is Christmas in July? I said, I have no idea, but apparently you're supposed to like, get dressed up for the last day of basketball camp. Um, so we did that. So um, not wanting to be the Scrooge, um, I want to wish you Merry Christmas in July. Hope it was wonderful for you. And, and in that spirit, I thought I'd, I'd share a, competition, a story about a competition that my sister and I carried on for some years um, on Black Friday, the official kind of kickoff of the Christmas shopping season. Each year, uh, uh, Bonton Department Store issues a coupon on, on Black Friday. And it's this coupon, $10 off the purchase of one item of $10 or more. Okay, $10 off, 10, one item, $10 or more. So my sister and I, we would, we would do our people watching on Black Friday. We'd go get, you know, whatever we were after. And then early in the afternoon when we were done with everything else, we'd head over to Bonton. And our goal was to buy something and pay the least amount of money out of pocket that we could. So again, stick with me here. We weren't after really something that we wanted or needed. The idea was to pay the least amount of money. So we're not talking buy a $20 item and only pay. We were looking like, can you buy something for $10.63? Can you get something for $11, right? And so that's how the competition went. Now, the challenge of this competition was all the more heightened uh, because the coupon had this little line printed on the bottom in fine print, see reverse side for exclusions, right? So then you flip it over, and there is, I'm just going to say it, a rather intimidating paragraph, okay? It's, it's like book length, really. Um, and it says this. It says, 
excludes doorbusters, bonus buys, super buys, incredible values, yellow and black dot merchandise, fragrance and cosmetic, tech, electronics, consumables, and really on and on it goes. Those are just some examples of what it excludes. Okay, seems reasonable. There's certain things that are just kind of out of bounds, right? Um, but when you walk in the store, you are, your eyes are immediately blitzed with all sorts of bright colored signage. And guess what all this bright colored signage says? On every conceivable rack and display, it says doorbuster, bonus buy, super buy, incredible value, right? So all of a sudden, there's all this stuff that yeah, this coupon is no good for. There was also a second, even longer paragraph on the back. It said this, excludes merchandise from Columbia, Levi's, Michael Kors, Nike, Polo, Tommy Bahama, Ugg, Under Armour, Calvin Klein, and on and on the list went. There's like 50 more things in that paragraph. And I don't know how many items you could actually legitimately purchase in the store with this coupon, either cheap or inexpensive. I, it honestly wasn't many. Um, and our competition kind of came to an end some years ago because the buying time just, like, they tightened the noose and you just couldn't buy anything with that, that stupid coupon. Though that might be an extreme example, if you have attentive ears to most advertising, uh, whether you're listening or whether you see it in print, you'll see these, you'll find these words. Exclusions apply. Right? And I think that there can be an exclusions apply mentality in the church. That, that we as Christians uh, just kind of adopt. And I think that this might be one of the things that Psalm 128 wants to confront us with this morning. Let me explain what I mean. As God's people, we can fixate on the suffering involved in the Christian life. Right? We hear all the time, we're not called to victorious living. We hear people say that. But we're called to, to losing our life and hatred and, and, and even persecution. Right? And Jesus did say, right, whoever would follow him must deny himself and take up his cross. Follow me. True. And God's people can can emphasize resisting the pleasures of sin and, and simply just walking in obedience to the revealed will of God in Scripture. And Christ's people are to, called to look at the example of Moses in, in Hebrews 11, in which he chose mistreatment rather than to enjoy the bliss of sin for a season. So please hear me clearly. These teachings aren't wrong. These teachings are are necessary and beneficial and, and encouraging and life-giving to us. In fact, in some circles, we need to hear these messages of suffering, of, of resisting sin even more. But there's two sides to every coin, right? And, and if we only look at one side of the coin, we are living ourselves into some sort of deficiency. And so this is what I want to say. And I think what Psalm 128 is saying to us, that redemption by Christ does not exclude 
the enjoyment of life. Try as we may to, to tame the assurances of blessing in Psalm 128. There is simply no way of trying to get around the unabashed blessings held out to God's people in this passage. I mean, you have to run a long way to the side to try to get around the blessings that are held out for you as the people of God. And so I think we need to consider this further this morning. Psalm 128 is commending a particular way of life to all those who would listen. It's a, it's a divine enticement to a, to a particular position, and it does so by holding out the blessedness of the life for those who fear the Lord. He appeals to us with the joy and the blessedness and the peace that are attached to His Word. In other words, we don't get a coupon that says, Jeremy Calley, salvation. And then on the bottom there's fine print. See reverse side for exclusions. And then you turn it over and suddenly there in front of you, like your breath is taken away because the exclusions are blessedness and joy and happiness and peace. That's not the way it works. Redemption by Christ does not exclude happiness or enjoyment in life. And, and so uh, we don't simply wander around the showroom of life observing all the things we can't have and can't do. Psalm 128 tells us emphatically the fear of the Lord brings fruitfulness. Now, Mike Becker did a, a wonderful job, great job, Mike, uh, explaining the fear of the Lord. Now, but really, for some of us, this is just such an odd, um, enigmatic, confusing, maybe even objectionable phrase, the fear of the Lord. I think Mike did a great job uh, kind of describing that for us. And, and another, one author, um, I don't know if it's as helpful as Mike's explanation, but uh, another author helpfully addresses it this way. I, wanna, I want you to hear this. He asks, Will we let God be as He is, majestic and holy, vast and wondrous, wondrous, or will we always be trying to whittle Him down to the size of our small minds, insist on conforming Him within the boundaries we are comfortable with, refuse to think of Him other than the images that are convenient to our lifestyle, but then we are not dealing with the God of creation and the Christ of the cross, but with a dime store reproduction of something made in our image. To guard against all such blasphemous chumminess with the Almighty, the Bible talks of the fear of the Lord. Not to scare us, but to bring us to awesome attention before the overwhelming grandeur of God to shut up our whining and chattering and stop our running and fidgeting so that we can really see Him as He is. And so the fear of the Lord is, is simply this profound, deep reverence and awe that, that we experience as we see God as He really is. Recognizing that the Creator God is so totally different, so totally other than anyone or anything else we know or experience. Now, 
Fearing the Lord isn't simply this mindset, though. It's not simply this uh, conviction that, uh, that God is completely other, that God is, is worthy of honor and respect, though it's never less than that. Look with me at, at verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And then notice the next phrase, who walks in his ways. Now, just a little lesson here. This is something called synonymous parallelism. So don't, don't get scared by that word. Synonymous, it's a synonym, parallelism. In other words, it's saying the same thing, just in slightly different terms, right? So, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. So, part of fearing the Lord is this mindset, this conviction that, wow, God is God, He is Creator, He does deserve my worship and attention. And then the second part of that goes with it. It, it manifests itself in a way of life, right? Who walks in the ways of the Lord. Fearing the Lord is a willing surrender of our life choices to God's law. As we're confronted by God's word, we conform ourselves to his revealed will in the word because we delight in God and we delight in his word. In other words, it's a life that's submitted to God's call to do what he asks. So fear of the Lord is not working yourself into an emotional frenzy as, as the band plays only to walk out of here and then systematically attack and, and belittle everyone around you. Fear of the Lord is not hearing from the Lord in your quiet times, only to move on throughout the day with exasperating your children at every given moment, giving in to your fleshly desires while you sit at your, in front of your computer screen, or, or giving in to covetousness as you drive by the car lot or, or look online. Now, please hear me. I'm not not holding out to you sinless perfection or, or, or near blamelessness. Let's put that straw man to the side. What I simply want to communicate, and more importantly, what this text communicates, is that the fear of the Lord is a mindset, a conviction, a feeling that manifests itself in our hands and feet throughout the week. Right? Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Now again, walking in God's ways, fearing Him, might, might suggest itself to some of us as kind of a, a boring, dull, stale existence, right? However, when we look at this text and we see the blessedness held out to us for this person, we can simply set those concerns aside because the Lord holds out a happiness for those who live their lives in holiness. So, here's the thing. Holiness and happiness go hand in hand. Holiness and happiness goes hand in hand. The world wants to separate those. You want to be happy? Well, you've got to kind of skim on that. Uh, a, a friend of mine, not a believer, he said uh, he was going on a wine tour and, and he's a, a, a good Catholic guy. And he said, the Ten Commandments kind of go out the window on a wine tour. In other words, if you really want to enjoy yourself on the wine tour, well, you set aside God's law. 
But Psalm 128 holds out to us that holiness, true holiness, and true happiness, they go together, right? Holiness is the natural environment for happiness and blessedness and joy, right? Seeking joy and blessedness and, and happiness and peace apart from God and apart from His holiness is, is like one of my little kids trying ignorantly to fit two puzzle pieces together endlessly that don't go together. You, you ever experienced that? Like, they just keep putting together, and it's like, could you just stop doing that? Right? It's not going to work. And that's what it is when we seek happiness and blessedness and joy and peace apart from God and apart from the holiness that he calls us to. So there's three specific examples in this text of the blessedness held out for us, promised to us, uh, given to us for those who live such a life. So let's look at verses 2 and 3, if you would. It says, you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will will be like olive shoots around your table. So, fruitful labor, fruitful marriage, and fruitful children are the rewards held out to those who fear the Lord. Now, what's interesting to me, and, and several commentators have noted this, is that work, marriage, children were all a part of the blessings of creation. If you think back to Genesis 1 and 2, the, the blessings of Eden, after making them uh, male and female, after bringing together Adam and Eve, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. What just happened there? He blessed work. He blessed marriage. He blessed children. So fruitful labor, fruitful marriage, fruitful children we're a part of God's original good creation, and they are the rewards of those who fear the Lord. Work that is, that is often difficult, often draining physically, emotionally, seemingly without reward, will be fruitful. The sweat of the brow will bring blessing. That's what it means when it says, uh, the fruit of the labor of your hands. Now, we may not be farmers and literally eat what our hands work at, but the blessing of the Lord in form of a, a paycheck to provide for our needs. It may not, yeah, it may not pay for filet, right? It may not pay for uh, a vacation on the Cape, but provision is the reward of labor. The, the psalm continues on stating that your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, Right? Now, certainly one of the implications of this um, might be that you are a Cali and you just keep having kids, right? I, I shouldn't be talking, I just... Right? That's one of the implications, right? To be a fruitful, fruitful vine. But there's probably more in this imagery here as we think about it. Uh, the, the grapevine in Scripture, it represents refreshment and abundance and celebration. Psalm 104 tells us that wine gladdens the heart of people. And so, 
what, what the psalmist, I think, is getting after is that spouses fulfill and satisfy and bring joy to one another. Right? The great pastor, James Boyce, summed it up this way. He says, to come home to a good wife is somewhat like coming home to a harvest. Right? And then verse 3 closes with this. Your children will be like a fruitful vine around, or will be like olive shoots around your table. Um, these are olive shoots, and so I think the idea will, is that there will be fruit for some time. They're just shoots right now, but someday they'll bud and bring forth the, uh, the olive fruit. Uh, one commentator, William Van Gameren, he says this, Though the olive tree may not bear until it has been planted for 40 years, it's a symbol of longevity and productivity. In due time, they bear fruit. The blessedness of the godly man will extend to other generations. And you looked at that last week in Psalm 127, the, where children are arrows and they're sent out, right? Now, some of you might be thinking, hmm, uh, those things are good, yep, but they don't sound spectacular to me, right? I mean, work, yeah, I've got a job, it's, it's okay, but I don't, I don't love it. Um, I know my wife, I know my husband is, is wonderful, but we get into those long stretches where we just annoy the snot out of each other, right? And, and kids, my kids are great, but they get in the way of so many things I'd like to do and to experience. They're, they kind of restrict my activity. They, they hold me back. I think if we're in that camp, if we're in that boat, the fact that we don't find these things wonderful and beautiful and glorious, maybe due to the the covetousness of our own heart. Increasingly, our, our culture sees marriage as, as something to be done later in life, to push off, to, to experience life for a while on your own because the marriage commitment is so restrictive, right? So it's, yeah, it's good at some point, but not now. And, and children, they're seen as a, a burden that get in the way of career advancement, success, and freedom. And work is, is not something meaningful and fulfilling. It's a drudgery. And, and really, if anything, it's only a means to an end to actually get after our real pleasures. Vacations, bigger homes, generally just freedom to entertain ourselves. And this passage corrects our view of blessing. John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, and, and really, honestly, if I could just commend him to you as, you want a good biblical commentator, Calvin's, Calvin's your guy. He says, uh, these blessings teach us that we ought to form a different estimate of what happiness consists in from the world. They make, uh, they make a happy life to consist in ease and honors and great wealth. The psalmist recalls God's servant to the practice of moderation, which almost all men refuse to exercise. How few are to be found who were it left to their own choice, would desire to live by their own labor, who would account it a benefit to do so. No sooner is the word happiness pronounced than instantly everyone breaks forth into the most extravagant ideas of what is necessary to it, 
So insatiable a gulf is the covetousness of the human heart. Essentially what he's saying is that we must cultivate more, uh, more refined, uh, mature, godly standards of blessedness. Because we have wandering, worldly desires that set value on worthless things. But God doesn't just promise blessing for the individual in this passage. This isn't uh, a, a you and God passage. Um, there's a blessing for all of God's people. I think implied in the prayer of verses four, 5 and 6 is the blessing of all of God's people. Look at that with me. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So far from being this selfish, individualistic concern, the blessing of God is upon his church. And this is the same blessing that Paul prayed at the end of the book of Galatians. Right? Remember the book of Galatians? It's this attack on people who uh, are changing the gospel. And he lights into them seemingly chapter after chapter. And then in chapter 6, he says, And as for all who walk by this rule, her peace and mercy be upon them, even the Israel of God. So he's talking about the church. Peace and prosperity be upon God's people, the church. So redemption in Christ does not exclude happiness and blessedness and joy and peace of this life. Now, some of you might have been sitting here for the past few minutes quite uncomfortably as we're looking at this psalm and as I've been talking. You might have, have the whiff of uh, prosperity gospel in your theological nostrils, right? You might smell the, the faint stench of your best life now right? Let's be clear. The so-called prosperity gospel is a distortion of the gospel, or as Paul would put it in Galatians 1, not a gospel, not good news, not from God. In other words, the prosperity gospel says, if you do X, then God is bound to do Y for your favor. And that's a theological monstrosity, a, a corruption. See, Psalm 128 is an example of a wisdom psalm. In other words, it's sort of like what we read in the book of Proverbs. It's important that we understand that because it, it colors the way we read it. Wisdom literature doesn't intend to pass itself off as some sort of absolute law, right? If X happened, Y follows. If you do A, then B necessarily comes about. It's not like a, the laws of a nation or a scientific law. They're general observations about the way life works. They're, they're kind of like the ideal set up for us to see and to consider and reflect on. And if you don't like this kind of, I guess, explanation I'm giving of what Psalm 128 is, uh, consider the book of Job. Think about Eliphaz and uh, Bildad and Zophar, all of Job's advisors. What did they throw at Job? They threw at him mostly biblical truth. But biblical truth held out as absolutes and, and incorrectly applied. Allied, applied as if it were some sort of law of gravity or some other inviolable principle. But they were wrong. God tells us they were wrong. I think the notes in the ESV study Bible, if you have one of those, it's really helpful at this point. On this passage it says, nothing suggests that this happiness is automatic. 
The rest of the wisdom literature fills out how those who fear the Lord work diligently, love their spouses well, and faithfully train their children in godliness. So these blessings are held out to us because they are a part of God's good plan. Because holiness and happiness do go hand in hand. The psalmist is not unaware of, of pain, of struggles, of hardship, of conflict, of terror in this life. Let's be clear, more than any other place, if you want to read about terror and hardship and conflict and suffering, go to the psalm. The psalmist is continually lamenting his situation, right? The psalmist isn't naive, right? Psalm 112, which is a, a psalm very similar to Psalm 128, starts out this way. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Sound familiar? Yeah. And then the, the very next phrase goes on to say how the, the blessed man, the, the man who fears the Lord, will be filled with riches. Again, this kind of blessing of, of material wealth. But then verse 4 says, light dawns in darkness for the upright. In other words, he's, he's acknowledging that the righteous go through dark circumstances. And then in verse 7 of that psalm, it says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. In other words, he acknowledges people of God you are going to go through unspeakable trouble, disease, financial hardship, relational conflict, workplace woes, struggles with your children. Those may not be absent from your life. But the godly continue to trust in the Lord in those things. But these blessings held out to us are, are an ideal, not necessarily a constant reality. But when they come to the life of the people of God, they're foretaste of what is to come, right? The fullness of blessing will come in the final and fullest exaltation of the people of God, right? We go to a restaurant, and, and what's the first thing that's offered to us, or what's the first thing we look at? We look at the appetizers, right? And appetizers aren't meant to, like, you order off, you might be one of those weird people that are like, I order off the appetizer menu, that's my meal. No, they're not intended to fill you up. Sorry if I just offended one of you deeply. Appetizers aren't meant to fill you up. They're meant to right, take that edge off while you wait. While you wait for something greater. They're, they're meant to take that edge off. They're just ease the hunger while you wait. And, and if they're good, they create anticipation for the meal, like, oh, this, this restaurant is fabulous. Can't wait to get my fork and sink it into that plate that's to come. And the blessings of God in this life, whether we experience them or, or we simply witness them in others, they're meant to be appetizers, foretaste. They're meant to point us forward to the final and fullest blessing that we will experience for eternity. The blessings of work, of family, of the church are appetizers for what is to come. The satisfactions of our, our labor are just a foretaste of what it will mean to rule and reign with Christ. You are going to rule and reign for eternity. You're, you're not going to get to heaven and strum on a harp. You are going to work, you're going to rule and reign, and it's going to be wonderful. 
the ecstasies of marriage, as sporadic as they may be for some of us, they're just a foretaste of, of the marriage that t- takes place when we are presented to the Lamb of God as a bride without blemish or spot. The prosperity of the people of God, the prosperity of Jerusalem, even in the small things in the church, are meant to keep us lurching forward, moving forward to the time when He will wipe every tear away from our eye, when there will be no more pain, no more crying, when the gates of the city will never be shut because there is no more threat. There is security. This passage holds out blessings to those who fear the Lord, teaching us that happiness and holiness go hand in hand now and forever. So here's the deal. I know some of you, you might question your circumstances. Your work, your marriage, your kids, it's it's beyond what you can wrap your mind around. It's, it's beyond you emotionally. It's, you're at a loss. It seems to choke the life out of you. You wonder if God has good intentions for you. I want you to hear these words. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Let us together rejoice as we recognize God's desire for our joy and blessedness and peace. He desires that for us as His people. And it's far greater than you can set your imaginations on. Like, if I could fix my life, I'd do this, this, and that. No, God's desire for your blessedness, for your joy, for your peace, for your happiness is far greater than than what you could dream up. So let us together recognize and rejoice in God's desire for our blessedness, our joy, and our peace. Some of us, we might have a sense of of discouragement, of discontentment, of of despondency because we're looking for God's blessings in the things that He may not actually desire for us. All those prosperity things. Hear the words of this psalm. Verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Let's, Let's recognize, as this psalm calls us to, the blessings of God in the things that we've come to devalue and and besmirch and to belittle. Our current calling in life, our jobs, our, our role in our family, and the people of God we've been grafted into, the gift that that is, to have a family that we can lean into. Let's recognize, as this psalm calls us to, the blessings of God and the things that we really, day by day, belittle. Not only does this psalm call us to recognize our blessedness, it calls us to pray for the blessing of God upon His people, the church. We can We should, without any shame, pray for the blessing of God upon God's people. Holiness and happiness go hand in hand, now and forever. And hear this, in the sporadic nature, in the dearth, and maybe for some of you, even in the absence 
of blessings now. Let us together anticipate God's fullest and final blessing for all those who are in Christ. Because the, the, the Scriptures declare that He is the blessed one forever. And if we're grafted into Him, we share in Him with those blessings. This life is not all that is nor will be. Forever we will share His holiness. Forever we will share His happiness. Holiness and happiness go hand in hand now and forever. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we confess right now that we have esteemed your desires for us too little. We have, um, we have no concept of what great joy and blessedness you have prepared for us or that you call us to. And so instead, Father, we... We chase after other things that we think will give us joy, will give us happiness, will bring blessing to our lives. We place our hope in things that we were never meant to. And yet, Father, we hear your word to us this morning that everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed. Father, forgive us for thinking so little of you and your desires. Father, give us strength to continue in difficult circumstances, knowing your good intentions for us. God, give us strength to endure faithfulness and obedience in tough times, knowing that you have our good at heart. God, help us to set our hopes not in this life, but in what you have prepared for us to come, an eternity with you, sharing your holiness and your happiness. God, change our view. Set our mind upon what you declare to us, and not the false uh, reality, the lies that this world would have us buy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.